on in chapter 4. We're going to look at chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 this morning. But you may remember I skipped over a couple of verses at the end of chapter 3, so I'm going to lasso back, pull them into our reading as well, because these, uh, these verses are conjoined together thematically. So I'll read for us. It's in your bulletin, as is an outline, 1 Thessalonians 3, 13, 11 to 13, and then in chapter 4, 9 to 10. Paul writes, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. In chapter 4, 9, and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more. Congratulations, Trinity. You have formed your search committee. The first meeting I was privileged to attend on Wednesday night. They're off to a great start. Now think about it. In all likelihood, at some point in the next number of months, a potential candidate for your next senior pastorate will visit Trinity perhaps sit in the worship service with you, perhaps unbeknownst to you. And this candidate and this family are asking what question? Lord, is this the kind of church you're calling me to come pastor? So what will he be looking for at Trinity? Commitment to the scriptures? Biblical worship with a congregation that loves to sing, as you do? Leaders committed to prayer, to equipping the saints for the work of ministry, a lovely facility in a strategic setting, a solid budget. Check, 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 check. Now, if Trinity offered this candidate all of that, it would actually be nothing without love. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, a church can have all faith, all knowledge, all gifts, all personal sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom, and without love, that is nothing. If there's one church in the New Testament that gets that, it is the church in Thessalonica. It's not very old chronologically, but it is a body of believers full of love. Notice chapter 4, verse 9, how Paul commends them for their love. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, although Paul is anyway. <laughs> for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. That indeed is what you're doing. This church proves that when a human heart comes under the intoxicating influence of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
When a human heart hungers for the word of God, when a human heart stands in awe of the resurrected Jesus Christ, when a human heart is in the grip of God's mercy, what oozes out when you squeeze that heart? Love. Love squeezes out the first fruit of the Spirit. So what is Jesus teaching you this morning about love? I'll just show you four things from the text. It's cause, it's extent, it's practice, and it's goal. Number one, it's cause. Look at verse uh, 12 of chapter 3. Paul breaks into prayer. He's asking God for something for the believers in Thessalonica. May the Lord make you to increase and abound in love. That might not be my initial prayer request for these believers because they are suffering persecution. I suspect I would have been motivated to pray, Lord, deliver them from persecution, save them, rescue them. I'm sure that's one of Paul's concerns, but it looks like his primary emphasis is that he's asking God to cause them, make them, to abound in love for one another. Paul is asking God for something that only comes from God. Why is that the case? Because on the one hand, love is so much like God, and on the other, love is so unlike us. Let me just tease that out for a second. He's asking God to teach them what God does so well. Love is so much like God. Look at verse 9 of chapter 4. You yourselves are taught by God to love one another. God is a God of love. His heart is irrepressibly moved in love. That is, he is committed to seek the welfare, the best interest with his own affection for others. It's interesting how the Apostle John, who was called the disciple whom Jesus loved, so he had some close-up, first-hand experience of, of the grace of love, John did, being with Jesus. John writes this in 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. See, there's the source. God's the cause. Love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You can't love until God has given you life through his Spirit. And John seems to be saying that when the Spirit of God causes you to be born again, you get the DNA of God in you, literally in your soul, and that is love. And so when we love, we are replicating the likeness of God in our conduct. That is so precious to God because God is jealous for the glory of his love to be made visible, to be made manifest on earth through you. We should think about that tomorrow morning when you go to work. God is passionate to see his love manifest made real, made visible through us. How do you experience the love of God? Just to be very simplistic, we typically experience the love of God in two principal ways. One, through his kindness, God meets our needs. He gives us things. He's generous. 
It's his supply. But there's another way that the world doesn't quite understand the way God loves us, and that is God loves you through his self-sacrifice for the unworthy. So I have in your outline Romans 5, 6 through 8. This is what Paul is saying. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is why the Apostle John would later write in his first epistle, we love because he first loved us. You know what that's like? It's like somebody shows up at your house and just hands you $10,000, $10,000 cash, just take it, enjoy it. And on the way out the door, they said, can I just ask for $5 to get a, a bagel of Bodo's on my way home? And you're like, of course. How could you not? See, when you've experienced this love of God, your attitude is, how can I not? love others as I've been loved by God. Well, here's the flip side. God is so much like us. Love is so much unlike us. And the Bible teaches you that you are hardwired from birth. You're hardwired for self-love. Before there's any supernatural change in a human heart, you are destined towards self-promotion, self-absorption, self-protection, You are relationally a consumer, whether or not you know it, until there's a change in you, your heart is hardwired to do relationship like this. What's in this for me? That's how we do relationship apart from a work of the love of God. What's in this for me? Okay, that's the cause. Number two, Paul teaches you so that you might know and love and relish and we might manifest in our midst the love of God. It's extent. Paul identifies two target populations for love. Chapter 3, verse 11. Abound in love for one another and for all. We're to love all of humanity with a special priority on the household of faith. Paul makes that clear in Galatians 6.10. He says, I want you to do good to all especially those of the household of faith. So we kind of know we're supposed to love each other in the church, but there's an overflow of that love to our neighbors that seeks with general compassion to alleviate human suffering and elevate human flourishing. Christians have done this for 2,000 years all over the world. As a response to the love of God, not only have they loved each other, but they have sought to alleviate human suffering and elevate human flourishing, not because people deserve it. It's because they need it. Your neighbors might tell you, well, churches should be good to people because other people deserve it. Actually, that's not the case. We seek to show the love of God to people because they need it. And in so doing, we actually mirror the common grace of God who, in spite of his creation's rebellion against him, God is still good. God is still kind. Psalm 145, the Lord is kind to all. God's goodness covers the earth. 
providing, supplying even to the just and the unjust. That's the extent. One another and to all men. There are many ministries Trinity has started over the years that are still ongoing where you can get a part, uh, you can become a part of that. Our deacons do that. Marty Johnson leads many ministries. I think Abundant Life was alluded to earlier in the service. Many ways you can do that right here in Charlottesville. But let me encourage you with this. You may be thinking, okay, I buy that. What is one simple way I can get started showing love to others, not just the family of God, where I live? Here's an idea. Hospitality. Ask your coworkers, ask your neighbors, ask friends into your home. Have coffee and tea, have a meal, just get to know them. Just show them neighborly hospitality. Express interest in their lives, and maybe that discussion will lead to the ultimate reason why you do that, and that is to make the love of Jesus known. Hospitality. Number three, love's practice. Verse 10, that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers and sisters in Macedonia. This is one of the most loving congregations in the New Testament, despite persecution, despite that it wasn't a very old church, we can probably safely say this. They were taught to love by Paul, and they caught love by Paul's example, because in verse 12 he says, love others just as we do you. Paul evidently modeled Christian love when he planted the church. So that raises what question? If you were to go back in time to Thessalonica and you said, okay, I am looking for tangible, concrete ways. Love is being manifested in this church. What would you see? Drawing from other scriptures, I will propose that you would see at least three verbs. Love is action. Love is a verb. Love is a skill. Don't think of it fundamentally as a feeling. Think of it as something that you do. Three things. First of all, love serves. Love serves. Paul writes in Galatians 5.13, you were called to freedom. Don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. You never more look like the Lord Jesus Christ when you're serving because we're told that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Where are servants' eyes focused? They're not on themselves. You can't serve if you've got your, your eyes on yourself. A servant puts their apron on, walks into a setting, and is looking around saying, what do others need? Servants are ready to spring into action to meet people's needs. Serve one another. It's a verb. Second verb, love seeks another's good. And here I've just fast-forwarded into chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. We'll look at this verse in more depth in June. But 1 Thessalonians 5.14, never pay back evil for evil, but always seek that which is good for one another and for all men. See the priority on the household of faith, but all of... Love seeks what is good for another person. I've uh, conjoined that with Romans 15 too. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. 
So that means what, beloved? Again, dispense with the notion that love is a feeling. Love is a heart commitment. It's a resolution. It's a conviction. It is a determination to do something very specific, and that is this. Love seeks to give your best to another's good, if even in the face of their worst. I'll say it again. Love seeks to give your best for another's good, if even in the face of their worst. Where in history do you see that most beautifully illustrated? On the cross. We gave Jesus our worst, mocked him, jeered him, bloodied him, punched him, deserted him, tortured him. What did he give us in response? His best. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Do you see how you can't love without asking questions? If love seeks what is good for another person, it obviously requires you to ask, what does that person need right now? What would be good for them right now? What would redound to the flourishing of their humanity at this point in time? That's why the way you deliver love might depend on the situation and the person and the context. Sometimes it's comfort. Sometimes it's rebuke. Sometimes it's consolation, encouragement. But you don't know that until you stop and think in response to where this person is, what is it that is good for them? So when Paul says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more, what is presupposed by Paul's exhorting them, a very loving church, to even increase in love? It's the tendency to grow weary. It, see, the more you get to know me, you'll find reasons not to love me. It's just the reality, <laughs> right? That, that's what happens in marriage. One day you wake up and realize, I didn't marry myself. <laughs> because spouses will always give each other reasons not to love each other. Oh, wait a minute. That's not what love is about. Love is a commitment, a resolve to give your best to the other person for their good, if even in the face of their worst. So let me give you a couple tests to see if you're really latching on to this biblical definition of love. A couple tests. Do you care how people experience you? You know, in any social setting, your persona, your body language, the amount of time you have for someone, the way you speak, the way you don't speak, you're communicating something about your interest in that person. You're having an impact on people. Love is very concerned with that aspect of self-awareness. You want to know, how do people experience me? If you don't know that, you've got some work to do before you can start loving well. Another test. Do you slow down when you're convinced you're right? I find in my experience, the more in the right a person thinks they are, the more dangerous they are relationally. They tend to bowl people over. And God didn't make people to be bowling pins. 
And the more right you think you are, the less inclined you will be to be patient with those in the wrong. Do you slow down when you're sure you're right? It's okay if you're right. You might know you're right. Fine. Do you ratchet it down? Another test. Do you listen more than you speak? There's a proverb that says, the fool only delights in revealing his own mind. So that can be me. I can be in a situation where I think what you need to hear is my opinion, my experience, my knowledge. I just feel like I need to weigh in, and I don't give you a chance to speak. I don't use two of these. I only use one of these. That usually is a problem. Do you listen more than you speak? Related. When you do speak, is the style of your delivery as important to you as your content? Some of you are wired to, I just got to get this content across and everything's okay. You got to understand this content. Well, the Bible stresses the way you speak is as important as what you speak. It's just as important. Some of you have wonderful things to say and it is lost on your hearers because of the way that you communicate. Love is very concerned with that. One more test. Do you persist to show love to another, to ask the question, what good thing do they need right now, even when you're not getting what you want? Again, you, you realize, oh, I'm acting like a consumer in this relationship now. I'm not a consumer. Yes, I'm hardwired that way. But the question I need to be asking is, what of my time, my resources, my experience, what good can I bring to this person, if even in the face of their worst? Here's the last verb. Remember what we're saying. Love is a verb. It's a skill. It's an action. Don't think of it as a feeling. The last one is love builds up others. And here I have my eye on Romans 14, 19. So let us pursue the things which make for peace. Why strife causes churches and relationships to crumble. Let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. So if you're looking to build something, what do you need in mind? You need a paradigm. You need a blueprint. You need an idea of what you're seeking to build. The dwelling you will return to after this worship service started with a, Lord willing, you're not living in a cardboard box. If you are, let the deacons know. It started with a blueprint of what that building was to look like. So let me address parents for a second, having been one of three children. It was very tempting for me to aspire to produce children that would fulfill a blueprint where they would be successful athletes, successful business persons, successful scholars, successful artists, successful money makers, successful culture changers. It's very tempting to produce kids principally who would do that. There's nothing wrong in and of itself with those things, but that would miss the mark. Parents, your principal responsibility is to produce children who, who reflect the image of God, who bear the image of Christ. I don't really want a successful artist, a successful business daughter, a successful child who's a great 
doctor or a professor or what you name it, who's very good at their profession, who is unconcerned with bearing the image of Christ, knowing God, standing in awe of him, fearing him, loving him, knowing his love. Thank the Lord we have people laboring in our church, Jamie, Corinne, all those involved in the education of your children who I believe their ultimate purpose is to do just that. Our last point, what is this sermon about? It is answering the question, what is Jesus teaching you about love in this text? And here's the fourth thing, it's goal. I'm looking at chapter 3, verse 13. Paul's prayed, not that they'd be delivered from persecution, not that they would be prosperous. He's praying to a very loving church that they would abound more and more. God would make them abound more and more in love. And then he gives a purpose. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Okay, just a second. Did this occur to you? <laughs> that one of the goals, one of the endpoints, one of the purposes of God causing love to abound in you would be that you would be blameless before Jesus Christ at the second coming. Paul is connecting our ability to love ourselves well today with the second coming of Jesus Christ in the future. What is his logic? What's he thinking? When Jesus comes again, it is the conclusion of a love story. He is the groom, husband, coming for his bride. And Jesus is working in your life and in the lives of his church right now to prepare his bride for beauty, to be dressed in the glory of holiness. That's what Jesus is looking for in his bride, the same thing most people are looking for in their brides. Beauty, glory, holiness. And so, beloved, doesn't it force you to ask, what is it then, Lord, that perfects my character in holiness? Paul's answer? Love. I, that wouldn't necessarily be intuitively obvious to us. He's saying love is the key. Why? Because love gets your eyes on others. Pride keeps my eyes on myself. Pride pollutes my heart. Pride detracts from holiness. Love, this ability to put our eyes on others and bring to pass what is good for them that meets their needs. That is instrumental in your growth and holiness. So, beloved, what power on earth is there to move you to get your eyes off yourself onto others? There's only one power on earth, and that is you have to get the giving of God into your soul to rescue you from getting. You need to know the giving of God. God conquers pride by giving, not by getting. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? This verse is asking you to imagine a time in heaven when God gathered his angels around him and he said, here is ruined humanity. Here is humanity in rebellion against me. Here is humanity utterly and completely helpless to save themselves. There they are, angels. What can I give to save them? And the angels are going, what if I gave my son? And the angels would say, you have got to be kidding. No way. 
God, you could give your son maybe for good people, but these people are in rebellion against you. Where are the good people that God could give a son for? There aren't any. The only thing God could give his son for are helpless sinners, you and me. Jesus agreed with his Father to give us his best to those who are least deserving. This love story is about mercy and grace to the incapable, the destitute, the wretched. And my point is that grace and that grace alone transforms how you relate to others. Let me just tease it out for just one or two more minutes. The grace of Jesus Christ transforms the way you relate to others. What happened at the cross for you if you believe in Jesus Christ? You trust the cross for your salvation. What happened? The cross is God's promise to no longer relate to you based on your performance. Now, if you don't know Jesus and you don't have the cross as your ultimate hope, God will relate to you forever on the basis of your, your performance. The moment you die, your performance will be pulled up, and it's, look, it's not pretty. It's unspeakably harrowing if you want God to relate to you on your performance. The cross is God's promise to put Jesus in a place he did not deserve so that you could be in a place you could never earn. That's the cross. Jesus took what you deserved. And sight of that love, that dying Jesus, the ultimate act of other-centeredness, the ultimate act of love, bringing about your best, getting your worst, bringing about your best. Jesus put it this way. Those who are forgiven much, you know the last phrase? Those who are forgiven much love much. That's the point. So do you see, you're, you're ultimately going to relate to people through one of two frames. Through the cross or through their performance. Now God's not relating to you through your performance. He's relating to you forever through the performance of Jesus. He'll never hold your sins against you. He treats you as if you've done everything his perfect son has done. But if I believe the gospel, why would I relate to somebody else to, to according to their performance? If I relate to you, my wife, my children, my neighbor, based on their performance, I'm putting them in debt to me. I'm saying you owe me adoration. You owe me cooperation. You owe me esteem. You owe me fill in the blank. If you are relating to others fundamentally by their performance, what they can give you, you have made them your debtors, and you've denied that God has paid your debt in Jesus. God is relating to you through the cross. You're not a debtor. Well, you're a debtor to love alone, to mercy alone. Oh, my goodness. Here's the beautiful part of grace. When it comes to a human heart, it never stays put. Grace is bouncy. Put that in your Bible. <laughs> Grace is bouncy. When it comes somewhere, it can't stay there. It wants to express itself to other people. So the clearer you see the self-sacrificing, other-centered love of Jesus Christ for you in his death, the more conscious you will be that that grace transforms you into a lover of others, even those different from you, even those hard to love. Grace will be, so this, this candidate 
will come to Trinity one day, this pastoral candidate, and what will he and his family experience? The great grace splash party. You'll be loving each other so well, the grace is splashing out, splashing out. This guy is going to be soaked with the other-centered grace of Jesus. Oh, he'll be here in a heartbeat. So, so let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for their interest in your word. I can see it in their faces. Thank you for your great love for them. Come to Trinity. Fill our hearts with a cross-seeing, a Jesus self-sacrificing other-centered love and continue to cause that love to abound in us more and more for one another and for all. For Jesus' sake, amen.